thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast, available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, X, and Rumble. And of course, be sure to visit mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, onto the show. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Saturday Conversation Show, a weekly interview, interview series where I talk to entertainment media personalities and content creators about their work and love of movies. Today's guest is Christian Toto, the host of the Hollywood in Toto podcast and founder of Hollywood in Toto website. An award-winning film critic and journalist for over 20 years, Christian has established himself as a leading conservative voice when it comes to the films in the film industry. I'm glad to say, Christian, yeah, you are here with me now. I know you've been on the show before. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, how have you been? Good. I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. I'm, I don't know about you, Christian, but I'm getting absolutely slammed with screenings and screeners <laughs> as the end of the year is coming up and award season and everything else. <clears throat> um, I'm sure over on your end as well, it's just a never-ending glut of, uh, of that kind of stuff going on. Yeah, there's a stack of screeners just out of reach, and then you have all the digital screeners. It's a it's a good problem to have, and my only real issue is I just can't watch them all, and I think that's unfair on a, on a certain level, but I am trying. I will watch as many as humanly possible, but can't watch every film given to us, but doing our best, and, you know, it's a, it's a fun time of the year. It is a fun time of the year. Um, I want to go back a bit when it comes to your career, You've been you've pretty much established yourself for over twenty years as kind of like like I said in my introduction, the conservative voice. But it could have been so much different for you. Is it true that you had aspirations for as an art career, like you were like an art major and like a, and and that was kind of like where you were thinking of of heading as a as a career? Just my entire life, yeah. I've got three art degrees that I've yet to use at a professional basis. And that was what I, my obsession was. I've always loved movies, but I never really thought about being a critic or entertainment journalist. I wanted to draw comic books and went to school, went to school, went to school. And then toward the end, I thought, my gosh, I don't even know how to make this a career. I don't think I'm good enough. And, you know, I just didn't seem to have the chops or the the path forward. Really didn't know what to do. And at the same time, I was just doing movie reviews for the school newspaper just as a lark. And really enjoyed it and got kind of wrapped up in that newspaper, became the, I think the assistant managing editor or something like that, got really involved with the whole process and thought, you know, I like this. I enjoy this. I have some chops as far as, as writing is concerned. It's interesting to me. And, you know, maybe I could steer myself into a, a entertainment journalist career. And of course they don't just hand those gigs away. So I had to make it happen. It took a, took a while. (laughs) <laughs> and then the I'm, industry collapsed around myself. So I had to reinvent myself once again. You know, you and I have an incredibly similar path in regards to that. I wanted at first, mm-hmm. I wanted so badly to be a rock musician. That was my thing. Mm-hmm. I was like in bands, I was writing music and demoing and all that stuff. And then I was like, look, I can't, I can't do it like this. It's just, I wasn't, you know, the rock star life wasn't for me. And mm-hmm. and then I was like, well, I'm going to try to get into the management side of stuff. So I went to a school, got a degree in arts management. And then during that time, something happened where I got disillusions with the whole music industry. And I got into movies like big time. 
Um, Circuit Code was a movie that, like, for me, just changed my life around that time. And and then I, I started writing about movies and I started my website and everything else. Um, but at the same time, I was writing for print publications. That was the same with you. You said, like, it took for you a long time. It was a Pittsburgh um, newspaper at first that you were like a Metro reporter, weren't you? Um, and that's kind of like how you got first got copy in, right? Yes, and not a good one. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was basically making up as I go along looking back. I, I'm sure I did okay, but it was not my passion. It was not my skill set, but you do have to start somewhere. And, you know, I worked with copy editors who taught me some of the basics. And, you know, I think just from the ground up, I was a decent writer, but I needed to get, you know, refine my skills. I'm still doing that right now. But yeah, it was, it was an interesting path. And, you know, you know, I interview, interviewed uh, Eric Alper recently. He is a music PR professional, and he's someone who I think he really did want to be a musician, lived that lifestyle, and it didn't work out for him. But he's created this curious path for him, where himself, where he promotes artists and he celebrates his love of music, and he's all over Twitter. He's a really fun follow on Twitter. I think it's at that Eric Alper, and you know, so you know, you, we don't always follow the direct paths that we're meant to be on that we thought that we were meant to be on, but. You know, it all ends, it all matters where you end up and if you're enjoying yourself. And I know you love what you do and I do too. And it's not easy. It's a lot of work and I'm yeah. constantly, I mean, I don't take days off really. I mean, once in a blue moon, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe, you know, take a knee and it's, it's shocking to both me and my family because they just expect daddy to keep on working. But, uh, you know, but this is the, 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 the path I've led and, and I've blazed and I'm, I'm very happy. I mean, ultimately I'm doing what I love to do. And that's, that's pretty great. Is it true that the first official review review you filed was for Wild Bill, the uh, Jeff Bridges movie? It was, and then my second one was Batman and Robin, which was much more fun to write. <laughs> was that for the Pittsburgh paper or were you the Washington Post at that time? Yeah, that was Pittsburgh Tribune Review, which was the secondary paper in Pittsburgh. There was the Post-Gazette, was the big the biggie, and then we were the second tier. And uh, there was a you know longtime film critic at the paper, and he went on vacation. I just rose my hand and said, hey, can I take over for the week or two where he's gone? And they said, yes, it was it was delightful. It's funny looking back now, and I remember the first time I was published in something that wasn't my website, and I was like, man, I made it. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on paper. This is like, this is forever kind of thing. Of course, after around that time, everything kind of just dissolved, right? And right. these days, it's hard to find <laughs> anyone who will pay for, for, for um, uh Film criticism, in like in print anyway. Um, how did the move to Washington Post come about from, from the Pittsburgh? That's a pretty big uh, jump from one uh, state to the other. Well, it was actually Washington Times and the Washington Post. So okay. in both cities, I was basically at the second tier paper, which is fine. I think I think when you're second tier, you try harder. I, you know, I was in Pittsburgh for three years and I just didn't feel like that was my home. It's kind of a weird thing and it's a, maybe a long, boring story, but wanted to move elsewhere, decided to go to the DC area. And then I got a job with a, I was I was overseeing a newsletter about uh, interactive marketing and PR news. Some, it was a terrible match. I was terrible at it. I got fired in short order. And then I went mm -hmm. back to journalism again with the Washington Times. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that most careers you stumble and bumble along the way. I mean, listen, God bless those who are able to find their niche, be successful from the jump and go from there. And it wasn't me. And, uh, but, you know, I'm grateful for every step along the journey. And uh, I had a lot, I've worked in DC for 10 years. I had an amazing time. I mean, I became a de facto concert reviewer. So I'd see Van Halen and Billy Joel and all these great shows. Oh. I saw a lot of local productions, theatrical productions. That was Arena Stage and, and the Kennedy Center. I mean, 
what a wonderful time for me looking back at my at my younger days. So no regrets at all. And then, you know, but when I went to leave DC, I'm now in Denver. I've been here for about almost 20 years. Um, I had to reinvent myself again. So that's, you know, it's it's a brutal industry. And like you kind of intimated, things started to change dramatically. The shift to online, the dying of newspapers, you name it. And uh, I had to kind of figure out where I was going to be and all that. And basically just went rogue and went solo at the same time. You saw Van Halen. Was that with Sammy Hager around that time? I believe so. I believe it was. I don't think I ever saw David Lee Roth, but uh, yeah, it was fun. I I saw Billy Joel and Elton John. They had a piano man tour and that was great. And it was, it was a very interesting time. That's for sure. Oh man. Just so lucky. Van Halen only came down here once with Gary Sharon. They never toured outside of the U S like hardly. You know, I said to my, I said to myself at that time, I was like, I love Van Halen. I love Extreme, but I can't see these. I'll wait till they come again. And I never did, of course. Yeah. Everything is to how yeah, it is now. Um, so 9-11, when that happened, it changed everything. I mean, I, to me, 9-11 is like, it's almost like, you know, um, uh, BC, AD. It's like, it's like you could draw a fine line right between them mm-hmm. and everything in, in modern Western culture, from politics to pop culture to, to everything, okay? And for yourself as well, this was uh, like a moment in time. You know, you were leaving in D.C., the Pentagon was attacked. And you, from what I read, you used to drive past the Pentagon all the time when you used to go to work. Every morning. Right? And and this uh, when this event happened, for you, this really was not only, of course, you know, you were like living amongst one of the greatest, you know, terrorism attacks, and, and probably the biggest terrorist attack on America, but... As a per- in a personal kind of political kind of like perspective, this was a moment for you where you said, who am I, what am I, and what am I going to be moving forward, right? Yeah, I mean, it really did wake me up. You know, it's funny. I worked at two right-leaning newspapers, and at the time I was hired by each one, I wasn't political. I don't think I was even right of center. I, I was kind of aimless in a way, you know, politically speaking. Yeah. So it wasn't like, oh, good, I get to work for the right-leaning newspaper in town. It was like, oh, it's a job I can write. You know, I'm I'm there. So, you know, the Washington Post hired, had hired me at the time. I would have jumped there as well. But then when that happened, yeah, I just I became more politically aware. And, you know, looking back, it's so complicated. And I think the, the, the ramifications of those attacks are still being felt today with, uh, you know, the, the Patriot Act and other sort of political issues mm. in the United States and maybe in globally as well. But I just looked at how both parties reacted to it, and, and maybe it was an extreme reaction. But you know, one party wanted to take the fight to the terrorists, and one party was often saying, "Well, why do they hate us? What did we do wrong?" And I, I you know, I, I chose a side. So, you know, I, I think the only thing that Dennis Miller and I have in common is that I think it woke him up too. And again, I had no personal connection. I did live in D.C. I was driving near the Pentagon every day, but it wasn't like I lost a loved one. But I just, it was, you know, you couldn't live through that moment and not feel changed in some way. And that's, that's when I began my journey. And along the way, I, I realized that there were very few conservative leaning film critics out there. I mean, you can count them on one hand practically. So, you know, I thought, well, it makes sense to me organically. And then also professionally, maybe there's an opportunity here where I could be myself and then, you know, speak for half the country. And that's, that's where I've been ever since. The, just not only the film industry at that time, but pop culture in general at that time was incredibly, I mean, I remember the one thing I remember around that time was just this glut of kind of like anti-Bush, not only anti-Bush rhetoric, but also a lot of these kind of movies that were coming out 
just about um especially when the Iraq war hit, like when the movies are coming yeah. out now, it's just like one after the other after the other. Yeah. Um, you know, from Hurt Locker to um in the valley of um Elah to all, all sorts of movies, right? Um, and when that's happening, like what was your perspective of the, the especially when it came to the movie film industry at that time in regards to a political context? Was there even even a feeling of like well, they're more kind of like left wing, but it's because they're you know it's a it's an entertainment industry. And the arts just kind of goes that way, or was it more kind of like a like after nine eleven was a more kind of like almost a um religious kind of cultish further to it because that's what it kind of feels like to me these days. Yeah, you know, it's I think it's changed since then, but maybe that was a pretty big pivot point. And I think that artists were so obsessed with what was going on. Many were anti-war, anti-Iraq, anti-Bush, and they wanted to do something. And if they were storytellers, then they tell stories. And I think one of the problems with that is that when you're so emotionally invested in a story, in a narrative, in a side, sometimes that that swamps your, your creative impulses. And I think, you know, when it comes to the Vietnam War, we saw a lot of great films in the mid eighties after 10, 15 years had passed Yeah, you know, platoon and hamburger Hill and, and full metal jacket. But this was, you know, making war movies while the war was going on while soldiers were in harm's way. And I had an issue with that from a moral point of view. It just seems like maybe that's not the best path. Um, the films were not really remarkable in, in significant ways. I think they almost all bombed, no pun intended dramatically. And so it was an interesting time. I also look back at that time and think, you know, the the causes that I supported, I don't know if I would support them today. I mean, the war was not well well managed. It was maybe the wrong choice. Uh, But also, you know, back in that period, all the artists were about free speech, free speech. You cannot silence us. And there was a little bit of, hey, maybe we shouldn't talk about this. We shouldn't talk about that. There are people in harm's way. This is the wrong time to be, you know, uh, attacking your own country. And so I understand that sentiment among the left that, you know, we have to speak out. That is our right. That is, you know, a, a core value. We can't lose that just because we're at war. And it's so fascinating because the left today and Hollywood today is so is so either, you know, sitting on their hands when it comes to free speech or just anti-free speech outwardly. Uh, they don't care that there's censorship running amok right now. And it's it's really been hard for me as someone who loves Hollywood, loves movies, loves these actors to a certain degree. And yet, you know, I don't care that I don't agree with their politics. It doesn't bother me. I don't agree with my wife's politics. But to see them lay down as censorship is raging and how free speech is really under attack on multiple fronts, it's it's been hard for me. I, it really hurts me because I, I love what I do. It's a passion profession for me. But to see the big actors of our age just say nothing about these issues is terrible. You know, Neil Young is <laughs> Neil Young can't stop talking against free speech. You know, but in 2008 or nine, he had a freedom of speech tour. You know, he literally mm. toured in support of free speech. And now he wants Joe Rogan silence. He wants X, you know, uh, you know, silence. He doesn't want any part of Elon Musk's platform, even though it's a freer version of free speech. So it just makes me sad. And and times change, people's people change, parties change, philosophies change. And I think that's often a healthy thing, but I don't think the results have been healthy. I have a kind of a theory as to how that or everything is mm. happening now. And I think it, it kind of happened around the same time where um, the internet started to really become a thing, a place, you know, that where people not only just browse, but where people could make business and could, you know, mm. like, like yourself, like you started um, what would um, totowatch.com around that time, you started to pivot to more to the online sphere. It was still more of a wild west kind of back then, but there was still something that was very, there was um there was opportunity there and there was profit there. 
And what I think kind of happened around that time, so you had 9-11 and you had kind of like a lot of people having this self-debate about uh, uh, identity in regards to oh, what it used to be a patriot or whether patriotism as well. But then there was a religion aspect to it as well. What was mm-hmm. happening at that time, from what I remember, was a whole kind of like militant atheist thing with Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, which I know you interviewed, and Sam Harris. So they started coming in to it as well. Then people started questioning the spiritual value of, of, of a nation and such. And then the internet came in. And I think mm. when people started going away from more traditional aspects of belief, something came in and took in kind of filling that gap. And to me, what I think that think that thing was was pop culture. I think pop culture really started to establish itself mm. at that time as almost kind of like something that that people would worship to the point now that when Black Panther comes out like 10 years later, people treat that movie like it's like the second coming. I don't know if you <laughs> saw it yesterday, but there was a post because it was um, Chadwick Boseman's, um, uh, it would have been Ch- Chadwick Boseman's birthday, and a poster went up from his actual official Twitter account from whoever was running it. It was like Chadwick Boseman's face and it always looked like a halo around him. And like uh-huh. it was like, you know, when you were here, you changed our lives. And, you know, when you're mm-hmm. gone, you know, but all that kind of thing. I was like, He's a great actor and he was a great guy, but he's not Christ. You know, let's just take it easy here. And I think that's what happened. I think a lot of people that there was a void that kind of came in there. Do you think like at that time, pop culture was starting to really uh, be, take on more than just, you know, a bunch of guys at the Star Trek convention and it started to like become like this kind of bigger thing where people not only were starting to put stock in these figures and stock in these characters and new these universes uh, to such an extent um, and also the celebrities behind them to such an extent that almost like felt always kind of like religious in the point where now uh, these same figures can say, well, you know, like a like a Neil Young or like, you know, uh, like any other number of people, uh, you know, we, sh- we should go against the things that we once held dear because, you know, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, because we, we kind of demanded and it's part of that uh, covenants uh, as part of uh, the, uh, you know, uh, artist collective or what have you. You know, it's an interesting thought. I, I, I think, I think you could point to the rise of Comic Con culture as a as a as a significant defense of your argument, because you know when I was a kid, if you, I used to buy comic books and hide them because I didn't want my buddies at school to see them, mm. and all of a sudden, you know, Comic Con ruled pop culture, and being a nerd was was actually a point of pride, and 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 I think we kind of celebrated that that whole renaissance in art and pop culture art, I guess you could say. So, yeah, I mean, I, but I, I also think more recently that's merged with a more, I guess, hard progressive ideology, which has kind of taken on elements of faith as well. When you talk about woke or climate change or identity politics, I mean, I think maybe, maybe they've all merged at this point, but that, that is an interesting thought that, that pop culture took a, a new, a new power, new perspective. And I, I think that the artists themselves realize that, when they did something, it mattered that when they made a comment, it would go ricochet around the, the, on the, the news cycle or, you know, or if a, a Saturday Night Live comedian would make fun of a politician, it would leave a mark. It would it would cause that politician to be branded in a certain way, which was often negative. And uh, I think Palin, arts, for example, yeah. yeah, that's my exact example. Uh, yeah. And I think when they saw that, they, they thought, oh, my gosh. You know, we can affect change in ways that we didn't think were was possible mm. maybe a few years ago. So, you know, I think there's a lot of cultural winds shifting in, in the last 20 or so years. Uh, I don't think you're wrong. I, I, th- I think it's a collection of, of different forces. But I do think that faith, kind of more traditional faith, has 
has receded to a certain degree. And uh, I don't think that's had a positive impact on our culture. I, I, you know, just looking at, looking at where we are right now, I, I, I'd be hard pressed anyone to argue that things are better today. Um, and around that time when you started doing what would Toto watch, you started working for Breitbart News as well. And Andrew Breitbart, I think, not only had a big impact on you, but I saw so many other people, like other people who were working there, like Ben Shapiro, for example, so many others were, mm-hmm. where he kind of like his thing was, look, um, you know, pop culture is downhill from from um, politics, you know. I mean, it's it's one is rolling into the other right now. We need to get on top of this. And he was a, like one of the first kind of guys who was like, we need to get on top of this. We need to put our perspective out there as well. How influential was Andrew Breitbart and working at Breitbart News to you um, as you're kind of like establishing yourself as a as a as a you know, freelance film critic, as a solo entrepreneur, but also an online voice who was speaking on behalf of uh, of people who weren't really getting that type of representation in kind of like in the movies and pop culture scene. You know, he influenced so many people and in ways that I don't think we realize. I, I, you know, I think he directly influenced me, but I think that some of the things you just mentioned as I'm thinking about it, like, oh my gosh, you know, maybe, maybe I saw what he was doing. I saw his voice. I saw his playful spirit. And, you know, I, I'm, the stuff I do is very pugnacious at times. Um, I throw some sharp elbows on on X, the, the platform formerly known as Twitter. But I don't think I'm mean. I don't think I'm vicious. I try not to be. And I think that that was one of the things that Andrew Breitbart was so good at. But the mm-hmm. one thing that still impresses me about Andrew is that I'm still talking to people today who are not big and famous, who are maybe are trying to make some sort of art in their lives or trying to create in the way that he suggested we create. And they'll say, yeah, I talked to Andrew years ago and he, he supported me or he called me back or he, and it was just, he was just constantly reaching out to people, constantly inspiring them, constantly knowing that he couldn't do this alone. And I just thought that was such a wonderful thing. And it's been very frustrating to me to see uh, as right-leaning art, for lack of a better phrase, is rising up. You've got The Daily Wire, you've got Blaze TV, you've got all these different platforms, large and very small, and that there's no sense of real camaraderie that, oh my gosh, you know, I work for Blaze, but maybe I should write about The Daily Wire's new movie because it looks like it's something that we should all be talking about. There's very, very, very little of that. And uh, I spoke to someone, I won't mention who, and I won't mention the outlet, and we had this great conversation about just that thing. And he told me that that's that platform's mission moving forward, that he would help, you know, change things and do that. And that platform has not done that and has not changed the way they work. And, you know, listen, may, maybe this new, the new Daily Wire movie, uh, Lady Ballers, maybe they'll, it'll have an effect and people will talk about it for good or bad. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but that's a shame. It's a shame because if Roger, if, uh, Michael Moore puts out a movie. I'm saying Roger Moore, it's quite a difference. If Michael Moore puts out a movie tomorrow, he knows that Variety and The Hollywood Reporter and Deadline and TheRap.com and USA Today and almost any media outlet is going to talk to him and spread the word about it. And that's an important part of the puzzle. You need people to be aware of these things. I often hear about movies or ask people about, hey, did you see so-and-so or that movie? And often they'll say, oh, I never heard of it. People need to hear about things before they can they can sample them. So that's that's been very frustrating, just in general. So it's been one of my pet peeves. And you know, my website and my podcast—it's not huge, neither yet. Someday, maybe. Um, 
It's bigger than what we're total watch, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, I always promote artists like that. I have an open forum. If someone emails me and says, hey, I just wrote a novel, it's right-leaning, or I'm a conservative, and I'm really struggling to get my name out there, I invite them on my podcast. I invite them on my website and say, share it, sing it, talk about it. I, I wish more people did that. And again, it's partly because I want more voices out there. It shouldn't just be left of center voices in the pop culture landscape. It should be everyone. And the, then the audience can decide, oh, I like this. Oh, I like that. Oh, this progressive movie is wonderful. And this conservative movie, it stinks. But at least mm. give us the choice. True. Very true. The Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is brought to you by Tee Public. Tee Public is the world's largest marketplace for independent creators to sell their work on the highest quality merchandise. With over 1.2 million designs, Tee Public is sure to have something you will love. The Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is brought to you by Gift Card Store. Australia's leading provider of gift cards. Gift Card Store offers a variety of prepaid MasterCard and Visa cards in physical or e-card format. You can even design your own card as the ultimate personalized gift. With Gift Card Store, you can gift the gift you know they will love. Please support Matt's movie reviews on Patreon. Get access to exclusive content, request movie reviews and top 10 lists, and help support my work. Please click on the Patreon link in the description below. I want to take a little segue here and play a little game I like to do called Choose Between Two. So Christian, here we go. I'm going to give you two different topics or names, and I want you to choose between the two. You can give me your reasons behind the, the, sure. the answer you give. Okay, so the first one is going to be for Cinema Cowboys. Clint Eastwood or John Wayne? Oh, gosh. You know, it's funny. I, I mean, I grew up with Clint Eastwood. I did not grow up with John Wayne. And as much as I love my father, he's passed away a few years now. He, for some reason, instilled in me a dislike of John Wayne. He didn't like John mm. Wayne. He thought he was a one-trick pony, no quasi-pun intended. And so I've always had a bias against John Wayne. But in, in recent years, when I became an adult, I watched some movies like The Searchers, you know, things like that. I thought, wow, this guy's really good. He really has something. So I have to pick Clint Eastwood, um, but I, I have my my appreciation for John Wayne has grown over the years after a uh, uh, <laughs> after being gaslit by my wonderful father. The monkeys or the Beatles? Oh gosh, it's the monkeys easily. You know, listen, the Beatles to me, I think on paper they're the greatest band ever, 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 ever. But my childhood was just swamped with monkeys music, monkeys TV shows searching down to find the monkeys albums that were out of print so it's an it's a deeply emotional and irrational choice of the monkeys abbott and costello or the real and hardy oh that's hard oh man that's a uh, that's a, <laughs> it's a it's a humdinger that's a that's a photo finish uh you know the abbott and costello movies are the ones i watch as a as a child and i love them dearly so i'd say abbott and costello but you know to me march of the wooden soldiers was my Maybe my favorite movie as a child, and that was a, a lovely comedy with them, and kind of interweaving all these different fairy tales into the into the into the film. And I, you know, three or four years ago, there was maybe it was called Stan and Ollie with yeah, that's right, Steve with, um, Coogan, Riley, Steve Coogan, yeah. What a wonderful film! It was bittersweet, and boy, those actors they they really brought those classic act comic foils to life in ways I didn't think was possible. So if you haven't seen that movie, I highly recommend it. But yeah, it's 
It's Abbott in, in a, it's a close one though. Die hard or lethal weapon? I am not part of the die hard cult. And, me and I know that me it's, a, it's yeah. a weird, and I've, I've, I watched it with my son maybe three years ago, just to kind of say, okay, maybe, you know, fresh eyes, blah, blah, blah. It's a, it's a very good film. I have no problem with it. I understand why Bruce Willis became a star because of it, a movie star, not just a TV star. But uh, I think Lethal Weapon is is more complicated. Uh, it's got a, a bluesy riff to it that I've always enjoyed. And I just think that Mel Gibson is a spectacular actor. You know, mm. he's a great director. I know he's a very troubled soul. I won't defend the things he's done and said. But as a movie star, I've always thought he was first rate. And uh, mm. great chemistry between him and Danny Glover. I think they're making a, a new sequel now. It, it sounds like a terrible idea, honestly. But we'll see. Um, favorite cinema snack, popcorn or candy? Uh, always candy, always chocolate. I'm not a big snack guy when it comes to watching movies, you know, maybe because I'm mm. a cheapskate and the, the, <laughs> the cost of entry is too profound as a, as a, as a journalist who doesn't get a lot of, doesn't make a lot of money, but yeah, I don't know. I've never been a big chomper of food during when I watch movies. We'll do it once in a while as a family and I'll make homemade popcorn and, you know, melt the butter old school. And, but, you know, to me, a candy bar is a candy bar. It's one of the greatest things in the world. And last one, streaming or physical media? Oh, that's hard. I've got a, a whole library of physical media downstairs in my, in yeah, my house. Too. And I love it. And I and it's, it's a cherished possession. And I, I, I have an emotional attachment to it. But I have to say, the speed of streaming, and if I know a movie is available on one of the platforms I subscribe to, I'm hard pressed to go down to the library, look through the A's, the B's, the C's, pick, pick it up, put it in the Blu-ray player, hit Paul. I, I don't know. It's just the streaming is pretty spectacular. But of course, having said that, you want to own the physical media now because they're changing things. They're erasing things. Yeah. Things just be, get out of stock. Here's my ultimate embarrassing monkey story. So I grew up in the 80s and I guess I was in my early, late teens, early 20s. And then TV stopped showing the monkeys show and I was devastated and I waited and waited and waited for them to bring back the monkeys. I wanted to see my favorite show again. I'm old. So this is, you know, when they didn't, if you, if it wasn't there, you couldn't see it. I couldn't mm -hmm. go to YouTube. I couldn't, you know, buy it here or there. And then the monkeys had a, I think it was a 48 hour monkeys marathon MTV. And uh, I, I taped every episode on VHS at the time, which is now an antiquated format because I said, you know what, bleep you guys, I'm not going to be beholden to you. If I want to watch the monkeys, I want to have every episode. Mm. And so I did it on four hour mode and I woke up every four hours during the night to put in a new cassette. So that's my wildly embarrassing monkey story that I'm oddly proud of. Let's get back to where we are in regards to your career and kind of like how the parallels with what was happening with technology at the time, especially with social media, because once you get out there on your own, um, social media, I think to me, is was and still is the ultimate marketing tool. If you use it correctly, if you know how to use it, you know how to get out there, the reach with it is really um, impressive. On the other end, uh, you got all the stuff that we've been talking about, right? Especially, I mean, I don't know about you, I've, 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 I actually, I've only just came back to X or Twitter um, in the last six months or so, I was off it for like three years. I deleted my account and everything, posted the whole Trump thing because I could, and then George Floyd, and everything, I couldn't stand just being on it anymore. Um, but I know the importance of a lot of those kind of like Facebooks and, and everything else as well. 
when you first started putting together um, uh, Hollywood in Toto, um, and at that time, and when I imagine around that time, social media was like a really kind of big thing. What was your kind of like feel of social media at that time? And did you have any idea or turn into this kind of like real force of like not only a cultural kind of force, but it became like this real kind of political tool as well, which we saw with the Twitter files, like it just that much um uh in kind of like um how in, incestuous the relationship was between politi- political parties and um especially the democrat and um and uh in places like twitter and facebook during covid it was quite it's quite it was quite troubling to to see that um uh, being revealed at, at the time you know i don't think i have a strong answer in part because i didn't know enough back then uh my site is almost 10 years old now but back then when it first started i was new uh, you know, my my previous website didn't make any money. Uh, it was just sort of a, an introductory step, but I didn't really have the marketing chops that I do now. I mean, I still have a lot to learn, but I sp- really spent the last 10 years learning about mm. marketing, about business plans, about um, my message, about having a brand. So it's really been a work in progress over this decade in part because I was an art major. I didn't have this training. I didn't have this background. I didn't know what I was doing. So basically I went on different podcasts or listened to different podcasts and said, Hey, teach me. And so there are a lot of great, great podcasts that teach you about social media, about branding, about copywriting, about all these different things I know nothing about. So I've spent the last decade just figuring out what I need to do as a business person. And uh, I'd say in the last five, six years, things finally came together and I finally started making a living at this, you know, a, a significant living where I could rely on it. You know, up until then, a lot of freelance, a lot of prayer, a lot yeah. of meaning on my wife who was making more money than I was at the time. Yeah. So yeah, I, you know, it's, it is a powerful force. I talked to a lot of comedians and they are really beholden to what social media can do for them. I mean, you know, I've got a gig coming up, come see me. This is my newest bit. Uh, mm. I can, I can try material out on social media and of course, as you and I know, uh, sometimes those bits get censored or they get shadow banned or they get punished or pummeled or you name it. So that's one of the reasons why this whole censorship error is so damaging. But yeah, and I, I, it's it's been a work in progress for me to figure out who I am and what I do, what I need to do. And I'm still learning. I tried Pinterest. I just, I just didn't have the time or the bandwidth. Um, I didn't think it was a good fit for me. And as much as I love X, and I, I do love X, I'm on it 24-7 practically, it doesn't really move the needle on my brand. I don't get a lot of clicks from my website from mm. that. But, mm. you know, I enjoy it. I get information from it. And I think I've developed a lot of odd, I don't want to say odd relationships, but relationships with people that I've never met. And it was funny, last uh, over the summer, I uh, one of my friends on Twitter came to Denver and we went to a ball game. He treated me to a ball game. I never met the guy, but we became friends on social media and he's like, I'm going to be in Denver. Let's just go hang out. And we had a nice time. So, mm. you know, it's it's just the cyber world we live in right now. But yeah, it's, you know, each of the platforms have plus and minuses and um, you have to learn it. You can't, you can't stick your head in the sand. And I will say that I've been told I should be on TikTok and that terrifies me on eight levels. Oh, no, I'm not doing that. No, no, I'm not. No, no. <laughs> so I'm still thinking as a, as a pragmatic step if I should go there or just at least have a presence there or just maybe... If I shoot video, which I'm going to be doing very soon, do I just yeah. throw it up there just, you know, for giggles? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, it's it's a whole learning curve for me. It's 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 daunting, that's for sure. One thing that happened, which was an incredible negative with the whole social media thing, especially in the last, you know, say 10, 
five years or so. There was a whole, whole kind of like woke movement that happened around that time. It all happened, in my opinion, around the time that um, maybe around the time of Obama's second term leading up to the Trump presidency. And then you had all the stuff after that. And, you know, Twitter was used for like, you know, all sorts of, you know, nefarious shenanigans, you know, punch a Nazi, all that kind of stuff, and all the crap that came from that and all that. Um, and I think that led to a lot of people getting really kind of frustrated with what was happening on on those platforms. I know it did for me, which is why I left. Mm. But but some people, you know, talk to talk and some people walk to walk. You walk to walk. You actually wrote a book about this called Virtue Bombs. Um, and, you know, we talked about uh, this um, uh, your book previously. I'll put the um, podcast link in my, in my notes below if people want to list up to that. But when it came to writing that book was it always an intention of yours to always write a book about something in regards to the film industry or the movie industry or pop culture um even before virtue bombs or did you find at that time it was like this is the perfect thing to write about because this prime material number one number two yeah. people were are talking about it quite a bit and number three i have like a stake in this because you know especially at that time i think if you were a conservative voice in anything at all, let it be alone be a conservative voice as a janitor or anything like that, the perspective was that people were going to like shame you and try to hunt you down, and the whole cancer culture thing was being was really ripe at that time. Is that what we're kind of lifted to, to the idea? Is that what led to the idea of virtue bombs in the first place? You know, I've always wanted to write a book, but just like the generic, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I wrote a book? But I mm -hmm. never pursued it in any capacity. I never really thought about what the mission would be if I did. I just it was just like a vague notion in my mind. And I know that other bloggers and other pundits, it's it's good to have written a book. It's sort of a calling card. It's almost like a like an oversized business card. And I understood it from that level, but I just never gave it a lot of thought. And I, because I'm doing all the things I do, I'm just too busy. I just never thought about it in a very concrete way. But I was interviewing someone for a story and he was a book publisher. And he said, you know, hey, we should do a book together. And I thought, yeah, that would be nice. And so <laughs> that that prompted the idea. And then I thought, well, what I write about? And like a second later, I thought, I'm just gonna write about woke because it's it's all I it's all I cover, it's all I think about. It has permeated the industry, it's had a very toxic effect on creativity. And mm. and to my knowledge, there was no book, I still think there isn't, about Hollywood and woke and the intersection of the two. So the the good news was. It was quick to write. It was all top of mind. It was all things I was very passionate about. I had a lot of knowledge on the subject. I knew what I wanted to write. And so it all flowed from there. And, you know, writing a book is not easy. It's time consuming. We all know the drill. But I think as a first book and probably my only book, it went okay. So uh, that was that was positive. And, you know, it just, it flew. I, I wrote up an early, early outline of the chapters I wanted. I think the finished book was essentially that. I might've added a thing or two. And then um, I was lucky enough to have enough connections where I'd speak to some people about the industry. Some people talked to me honestly, some people didn't. Um, so I think sadly it's a, it's a year or so old, but it still holds up. It's still applicable. I mean, I could mm. do an update on it. There could be some changes to it, but uh, it still has a grip on our culture and on Hollywood. And it's a shame. And I really, <laughs> I may have said the first time around, I was just hoping that, Boy, wouldn't it be great? Because these these projects takes time. And even when you're finished the book, it's months and months until it actually hits the stands. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if this book is a complete bomb? And by the time it hits, that this this whole fever is broken. But it didn't happen that way. So no. Around that time, your podcast game was really kind of like up and running as well. How did you find approaching the whole kind of podcast thing? Because for me, when I first started doing my podcast, it took a little bit of time to kind of it kind of reminded me of the initial stages of me being the film critic trying to find my voice 
and my mm. writing style and everything else. It, it was a different medium, but it was the same sort of type of, type of experimentation. What am I going to talk about? Who am I talking to? What type of format am I doing? Is that something that you had to go through as well to try to find like what type of uh, voice you're going to be? Because one thing where a voice is like, you know, where people read your words, nothing where you mm. are the voice and how you want to project that to the world. Yeah, I think in almost every way I'm a late bloomer. So it's actually worked to my advantage to a certain degree because by the time I became a podcaster, I've been doing a whole bunch of radio, um, you know, quick appearances, longer appearances. So I was able to understand how to speak in ways that maybe were a little more succinct. I wasn't rambling on and on, hopefully, unless I'm doing that right now. Um, so I had a little bit of experience there. And it's all, and you know, this is it well as anybody, it's all about the reps. You got to do mm. it. You got to yeah. keep doing it. And then, like you said, I think, I think the voice, and it's not my physical voice or your physical voice. It is your voice, your, your persona, your brand, what you say, what you mean, that's critical. And I think I developed that by writing a ton over the years. And honestly, I think I've just really found it in recent months on my new podcast, which is same name, but um, I just feel more confident I yeah. feel more expressive. I feel like, oh, I get it. I finally get it. This is what this is all about. So I, I think you just have to kind of go through that process. And uh, there's a podcaster I enjoy, Pat uh, Pat Flynn, and he does a lot of uh, social media um, marketing tips. Um, it's Smart Passive Income is his main show. And often, well, not often, but from time to time, he'll talk about how raw he was at the beginning how bad he was at the beginning mm. and then he'd play a clip of his first show and he's terrible his voice is subdued he doesn't have any spark to it there's no pizzazz i mean listen you have to be uh you have to have a little bit of showbiz in your presentation and you know it's not just hey this is my show i mean even if the content is great if you're not interesting then people are going to tune away so i just thought that was great of pat to kind of show that old side of him and to let people know that hey if you want to be a podcaster you may stink at the beginning. You may really have a, a long learning curve, but that's okay. You just jump in there, you get it done and you'll get better and you'll enjoy it and you'll build an audience. So I think all those things are important. It's humbling for sure, but you don't get a voice without trying it out again and again and again. Let's do another game before we hit the home stretch here. Okay. <laughs> so this is called Rapid Questions. I'm going to throw some questions to you. And some of them are uh, serious. Some of them are silly, but I want to know what your reaction okay. is to them. Greatest actor. Yikes. You know, uh, strictly, I mean, I've loved Dustin Hoffman for years. Uh, Gene Hackman is someone I adore. Boy, that's that's like asking your favorite movie, unless you have one in the, in, in the, in the, uh, what's the word for the gun? In the, in the, in the, in the, in the canon? In the, in the, yeah, in the chamber. Like that. In, in the, the chamber? chamber? That's it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, I don't know. And, you know, I think that is one of the most subjective things possible. There have been great actors who just never got a great role or never never had the breaks they deserved. Uh, I will say it's not Keanu Reeves, though I think it seems like he's a lovely person, but uh, he wouldn't be in my top a thousand. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I should say like Laurence Olivier or some of the classic answers. But it's, it, you know, being a critic is a very personal, very subjective, very emotional gig. So I can't help but think of the people that I grew up watching, like Pacino and De Niro and people like that yeah Pacino's mine uh for sure Pacino De Niro but Pacino I think like it's always been between them two for me but I think Pacino's got the, got the edge on him uh -huh. um greatest director you know I think from a pop 
pop culture, popcorn perspective, Steven Spielberg reigns supreme. But if I go in a different direction, uh, oh gosh, these are hard questions and I don't have quick answers. You know, um, Ridley Scott has reached some heights that I think are unbelievable. Uh, James Cameron is an, as an action director is, is the tops, um, you know, the Coen brothers as, as storytellers are, are spectacular. Yeah. I'll just stop there. And these are, you know, and I think one of the areas that I'm weak in as a, as a film critic is film history, film lore. You know, mm. I could mention the the classics of the, the cappers and the John Fords, but yeah it didn't have the personal resonance of, of when I became a movie fan. It didn't, it didn't lock in during my childhood. So it's hard to kind of make them as my personal favorites. Um, a legend living or dead. You would love to interview. Elvis Costello. Um, mm. Maybe, maybe top. Um, John Cleese. Um, yeah. I think those are my top two. Pineapple on pizza. Yes or no. Uh, an abomination. I, I, yes. I don't even like. Yes. I don't even like uttering the words in the same sentence. Yes. You know, it's Preach. as much as I like as much I like toppings on pizza. There's something pure about just a cheese pizza. It's almost like you don't need anything else. But I, I mean, I, mm. I like I like meatballs. I like uh, you know um, sausage. I like pepperoni. I like um, uh, jalapenos. There's lots of great toppings, but there's something innocent and pure and perfect about a cheese pizza that needs nothing else. So that's that's my basic pizza philosophy, but yeah, pineapple, it, it shouldn't be in the same room. Raising Arizona, still your favorite movie? Yeah, it's never been surpassed. Um, I don't know what would surpass it. it it's it's locked in. It, it, it's there's it's in a safe, uh, you know, you, you can't crack it. So I, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of the movies that I've really loved in recent years. I really love Jojo Rabbit. I really love Joker. Mm. Um mm. Some of the Marvel movies, just to be able to watch them again and again and again is is magical to me, but nothing has come close to Raising Arizona. I mean, I just, to watch a movie and every time you see it, something new opens up to you. I, I think that's such a gift. And final one, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? You just watched it recently. I know you're not <laughs> in the cult of Die Hard, but as a, as a, you know, as someone who's like, you know, I think around, especially around the time of the internet, the, high, mm -hmm. the whole diehard Christmas movie cult has really kind of sprung from that. Uh, do you consider it so? I personally do not. What What do you think? Ironically, I just had this conversation on a local radio station <laughs> just a few hours before well, you it, and I turned the, the mic season, on. right? So, yeah, it is a season. I will say that the conversation slash debate about it is part of the Christmas season. It is It is a as traditional as eggnog and mistletoe and the Christmas tree. It's not something that I watch every year as a Christmas favorite, but you know what? If there are so many people out there who cling to it, who discuss it, who love it, who mention it this time of the year, then it is. I think the people have spoken. I think that's the ultimate arbiter. I just got to say, though, that if Die Hard is a Christmas movie, then Lethal Weapon has to be a Christmas movie as well, because that's movies set in Christmas as well. I mean, there's yeah, a freaking I, scene where uh, um, an undercover Mel Gibson as uh, um, Riggs is doing a uh, cocaine deal within a bunch of Christmas trees. You know, he's there's a line where the guy says, I'll tell you what, I give you any Christmas tree on a lot. And like, like, that's a whole <laughs> kind of thing about it. So if one is in, then the other has to be in as well, right? So Yeah, and to I me, think. Elf is the ultimate Christmas movie. It's what I watch with my family every year without fail i can't imagine a christmas without it and I, I always give kudos to john favreau the director because he went out 
purposely to make a movie that would be timeless. He didn't want to hire, you know, the the actors of the moment, uh, didn't want to use the songs of the moment, the, the, the hip phrases of the moment. He created something that could withstand the test of time. And it just, he scored a bullseye. It's an amazing film. So I want to get uh, one more questioning before we finish here. So sure. we've talked about how all these changes have been going on as your career has progressed and has you kind of grown as a like a person and as a film critic and also as an online presence. What is your perspective on where the future is going to go now with, with films and cinema? Because we're at an incredibly interesting time right now where all these things have happened, like the woke stuff and the post 9-11 all this stuff that's that's been changing things in the film industry and how to kind of approach stuff streaming as well of course is a huge, huge thing with the the strikes that we just had so on one end you got these emerging kind of distributors and studios you know angel studios kingdom daily wire blaze all these guys right and on the other end you got something like disney which for a long time is kind of like placed itself on the plateau it's kind of like d kind of like work conglomerate right but that yeah. is bombing big time i mean i think in this year alone it's lost like almost like a billion bucks like in um uh, like in revenue and stuff from like all the box office bombs that it has there's kind of like this kind of like balance it's it's still more to the the the, the disney side i think because it's such a giant nothing to ever going to pass no matter what happens there but there seems mm-hmm. to be a little bit of a rising on the other end where before you were talking about how i remember i was reading an article of yours where you spoke about how conservatives really need to dip their toes more into the arts and need to start making more films and need to start doing things. Mm-hmm. And that's starting to happen now, especially on that like a faith-based movie thing. It's quite been quite remarkable to see what's happening at that end. What's mm-hmm. your what's your kind of like your prediction about where things are going with this? Are we going to are things are going to get back more to normal? Are people looking for the new the the new the the north way, way things are way, way things were, sorry? Or do you think there's going to be another shift that's going to just kind of sideswipe everything again? Because it's possible that it's like very huge as well, especially with the election next year. I mean, who knows what's going to happen there? I think uh, a couple of just broad comments. One, I think the future is change. I think change is happening more quickly than I've ever had in my lifetime. I think anyone who knows the future or says they know the future is fooling themselves because you never mm. quite know. I think that, um, I think that, as technology improves, we will see more and more, I guess you could just call them upstart uh, filmmakers and, and creators and talents competing with the big boys and girls of the, of the world. I think that the, the rise of censorship scares me to death and it keeps, it literally keeps me up at night and I don't see an opposing force big enough and strong enough to, to clamp it down. And that scares me. Um, and I thought that force would be the, the press, the mainstream media, I thought they would put their partisanship aside and, and rally against it. They're not. They're actually doing the opposite. That scares me. So, I mean, I I think that rise could swamp everything that you and I are talking about. So that's that's my biggest fear. Um, I, I mean, I think on a positive side, I think there's a lot of things happening that are to our benefit as, as consumers. You know, <laughs> When you when 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 our show ends here, we could essentially go watch any movie, any TV show in the history of mankind. What a yeah. power! It's amazing. At, at a listen, there's always a few shows that are unavailable. There's always a few movies you can't see. But just generally speaking, you can do anything you want right now. You can watch anything you want. That's a powerful tool that we have. It also makes it really hard for new storytellers to crack that because they're competing against everything. 
So, I mean, I just think that the, the fact that we can see what we want to see when we want to see it is very powerful. It's very, uh, it's, it's very, uh, we're lucky to have that in our lives. And, um, you know, I think the creative urge within all of us is still flickering and still alive. And I think there's always going to be another storyteller um, who wants to tell his or her story. And that's, that keeps this entire game afloat. And that's a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing. And I, mm -hmm. I know one thing that I can always hold on to and hold dear that I know that whatever happens out there that you are always going to be there to cover it. You're always going to be the voice to really bring it uh, to, to the masses. I know I can't tell how many times I've listened to your podcast or I'll go to your website or I'll follow you on social to something that comes up there that you're talking about or commenting on that I had no idea that was going on. And it became <laughs> such a, it becomes illuminating, educational, um, entertaining as well. Um, and I really urge everyone out there to go listen to and subscribe to the Hollywood in Toto podcast. It is really uh, like, in my opinion, a one of a kind kind of podcast because not only Christian have you been doing it for a long time, not only have you found your voice, but like I said, you have guests on and you're covering the news that a lot of people aren't covering. And I really respect that and I really enjoy that. And I think everyone needs to get out there and, and get on it. Um, and where else, some Christian, can people find you online so they can get on your stuff? Well, on X, I'm at, at Hollywood in Toto. Um, that is my brand, and I'm pretty consistent across the different platforms. But yeah, just the website and, and, and the podcast are my main passions right now. I do contribute to Outkick.com and also the Daily Wire. But yeah, and the, thank you for the kind words. I mean, I, one of the things I try to do with, with the work I do is to uh, let people know about certain subjects, about certain artists, about certain people who deserve a bigger platform. And, uh, and I think that's important. So I think we can all do that. And, you know, we all, I think we can all feel powerless in society today because we don't have all the money. We don't have all the fame, don't have the big platforms, but we can all do our part. We can all chip into a crowdfunding campaign for an artist who needs a break, or we can all just do a couple of quick shares on social media. And all of a sudden the story you thought was important is being seen by many more people than ever before. So I, I don't think we're powerless. I think we just need to kind of realize what our voice is and rise up. And uh, I think that's that can mean that could mean everything. Well, Christian, I thank you so very much for your time today. Um, always a pleasure to talk to you. And again, everyone, check out Christian stuff. We're going to have links in the show notes. Click on it, read, watch, listen. You will love it. Thank you so much, Christian. Thank you.